Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Punnets Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And today's episode is happening during a week that has a monumental impact in world historic terms. And look, I know that I am prone to hyperbole at times. Okay, all the time. I'm often, if not always, hyperbolic in my assessments. Overly enthusiastic, overly pessimistic. But this is not one of those times. The British elections are mere days away. And who wins that election could very well set the stage for global politics for the coming decade, if not the coming century. Because the results of cataclysmic climate change require action today, not tomorrow, not 10 years from now, and certainly not 25 to 30 years from now. It will be too late, the scientists tell us. And it's not merely climate change, although that is no mere political issue at this point in time, but it is not merely climate change that requires our immediate and direct attention. After all, austerity has claimed the lives of millions and millions of people since the Great Recession of 2008-2009. And in spite of the fact that the left has largely defeated the arguments and the ideology of austerity, such that even Theresa May and Boris Johnson themselves have had to argue for the end of austerity... That doesn't mean that this election will not be a significant battleground for how things end up in terms of our neoliberal hellscape. Will the NHS be privatized and opened up to the rapacious American pharmaceutical industry? Will tuition fees be scrapped by the Labor Party? Or will they be inevitably hiked during the impending recession? And speaking of the impending recession that I talked about with recent DPS guest Laurie McFarlane, himself a Corbinite, Who will be there in office at the helm of a major industrialized capitalist nation like Great Britain to manage the coming recession that is inevitable? We know it's coming. It's a question of when. It's a question of how severe will it be rather than if it will come and if it will have consequences both for the British as well as the global working classes. And for my predominantly American audience, what impact will this British election have on the Democratic Party primary races? We all know that the Bernie wave is on the rise. Bernie is surging in the polls. What kind of boon would a Labour victory this week be to Bernie Sanders' class struggle social democratic strategy? And can this transatlantic left emerge victorious against all odds? So perhaps now, dear listener, you understand why I have a knot in my stomach about the coming days. Fortunately for us, tens of thousands of dedicated labor activists are pounding the pavement, canvassing vigorously in the winter cold, hitting the doorsteps in the dark, and talking to strangers trying to convince them to pull that lever for Jeremy Corbyn and his labor party this coming Thursday. But will these spirited efforts be enough? Well, fortunately for us, we have one of the sharpest minds when it comes to assessing these matters on DPS Today. Joining us once again, I am honored to bring you all James Meadway. James was an economic advisor to the shadow chancellor, John McDonald, for some time. He has recently left public life in order to pursue writing a book about that experience and what challenges may be ahead for this Corbinite movement. He was caught a little bit off guard by the recent elections and had to put that book on hold, but he is pounding the pavement alongside his Corbinites. 
He's hot on the circuit of podcasts and television programs alike, making the case for a labor government. James Meadway, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. No problem. So we have much to discuss. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the electioneering horse race style of commentary. We're going to break down the stakes of this election. We're going to talk about what a labor government, what kind of challenges they might face should they be successful next week, this coming week. Before we do that, let's talk a little bit about this concept of the transatlantic left. Uh, it's a fantastic piece that came out in Jacobin online by Megan Day talking about the resonances between you know the battle to save the NHS and in Britain and as well as our fight for Medicare for all here in the United States. Uh, this notion of a transatlantic left has been pushed by yourself and a number of your comrades, both uh, overseas and here in the U.S. What does the transatlantic left mean to you? Why is this a concept that you have been pushing and trying to cultivate uh, so heavily over the past couple of years? Well, the, the, there's two things here. One is that what you've got is, is both of the countries that went furthest down a, a neoliberal path from really the end of the 70s onwards, especially the US and the UK. I mean, UK probably arguably more, given that you started in a much more social democratic setting anyway, uh, and then moved a, a long way towards you know, privatising uh, anything not nailed down, stripping back what you could of the states, reducing taxes for the very wealthy, all of these sort of things. So these are the two countries that out of that set of sort of Western, broadly speaking, richer developed uh, economies that went furthest in that direction. And now you've got in both of them a fairly similar reaction, or at least a reaction in parts that, that looks quite similar, which is a response to the, the complete failure of that system from 2008 onwards and a re-emergence of the left. Um, so that's the kind of the objective part of it. The subjective reason, if you like, to talk about uh, an Atlantic or a transatlantic left is, is that it, it, it reinforces the message in either place about what you're trying to do. It is always easier, certainly in a British setting, to say we should be doing this if you can point to a kind of what is seen as a, a good country example that, that's also doing something similar. So if you can point to something that is being done in Germany or Sweden, then that is taken as like a good example to follow. And the US is often taken to be the best example of all. Um, rarely gets used as a sort of left-wing thing, but it's quite handy if it's there. So it's very, very helpful just to be able to say, look, this is what other people are doing. This is what's happening. Uh, in some other country, and this is why it could also work here. We're not just going out weirdly on our own. And, and I think that does work the other way around as well. If you look at some of Bernie Sanders' platform around worker ownership, it's quite directly, and I think pretty deliberately, uh, modelled on some of the some of the stuff that, that Jeremy Corbyn uh, and John McDonnell have been talking about, about handing over shares collectively to workers at large companies, um, that kind of stress on worker ownership. You can see the direct parallels there. So the two kind of mutually reinforce each other in what I think is a, a very, very helpful way. One of the more interesting resonances that hasn't been remarked upon as much is if you, if you, talk, if you toss Joe Swenson into the mix mm. of, of this you know, election campaign and, and the way that she has positioned herself and the Lib Dems have positioned themselves overall, you really kind of get a, a really interesting comparative case study with the Democratic Party primary election. Because it's it's a bit of a stretch to say, but it's not completely, you know, not, it's not completely out of left field to suggest that, you know, the, the Lib Dems and, and Labor sit side by side inside or adjacent to the same party. That is the Democratic Party in the United States. As you see both wings of that party sort of posturing and trying to outdo the other, uh, the, the energy really lies in the progressive and the left wing. Uh, as it does with labor uh, over Joe Swenson's, you know, uh, ridiculous attempts to try to, 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 to sort of co-opt the energy from labor whilst, uh, you know, uh, posturing to, to the right 
and, and acting to the right time and time again. So a lot of really interesting and useful allegories here. Let's take our listeners here back in time. Two months ago, approximately, about a month ago, uh, a lot has happened. Time speeds up in moments like this. You wrote a really important piece, uh, it appeared in Tribune, called Winning the General Election. And you talked about the, the pending manifesto, the Labor Party mm-hmm. manifesto that would take people into the election. And you talked about the kind of energy and the strength that the previous manifesto provided in, in, the, in the prior general election. But you also argued that we need to go much further than that. Lay that argument out for you know, my, primary, my primarily North American audience here. And do you think that uh, the, the latest Labor Manifesto was successful in achieving uh, what, you, what you laid out? Well, it's, it's the, the argument, I suppose, is that, um, well, first of all, you can't just sort of do the same thing twice. You can't just photocopy what, what we had last time and then, then hand it out again. That, that was never going to be an option. You have to sort of say something else and advance an argument and the rest of it. I mean, what happened in 2017 was the, the manifesto was written as a draft. It then got leaked by, you know, person or persons unknown to the press, to a hostile press, who then went wild publishing chunks of it and with the intention of of damaging the Labour Party as much as possible. Uh, And in the belief from the press that because the manifesto was relative to anything that had been seen probably for 30 odd years in Britain, it was a significant break with with neoliberalism. It was a significant turn towards some basic sort of social democratic principles. It talked about making university education free. It talked about bringing privatised companies back into public ownership. And this was such a breach with what had been seen in the past that the kind of right-wing press, and thinking here like the the Telegraph was the paper that that sort of led on it, really thought that this would be wildly unpopular and it would destroy the Labour Party. In practice, it had almost exactly the opposite impact. It was seen as like a proper break. It suddenly excited everybody about what was going on in the election. It was a real sort of, it it stands out as something of a turning point. It sometimes gets a bit exaggerated how much of a turning point it was, but it it stands out in people's heads as a turning point. It gave them something to fight for. So what you have to do this time round was that wasn't going to be an option. You can't sort of you know, try and deliberately leak your own manifesto to sort of get the same hit out of it. It's not going to work. And also two years down the line in, frankly, much worse economic situations, it's another two years of austerity. It's another two years of wages not going anywhere. It's another two years of investment flatlining. Um, in much worse circumstances, with climate change now a completely unavoidable fact, you had to lay out a, a different set of principles and ideas and where the Labour Party wanted to get to if it was going to be in government in order to get anywhere. Because you had to respond to the situation people were in, which was worse than it was then. And you had to spend more time laying out what kind of society you wanted to get to. Because in 2017, we could sort of say, here are a few things we'd like to do. But it wasn't quite a, a sort of big picture vision in the same way. So that that was the that was the argument in the piece, really, that, that to get anywhere, we had to sort of build on 2017 uh, and make uh, more, um, to do a better job not do a better job, but do do a different job of describing where you want to get to, describing what sort of society uh, you live in, which I think the manifesto does do. I think you can see it's clearly building on what happens in 20, what we said in 2017. It's got much of the same thing, still free tuition, still bringing uh, privatised utilities back into public ownership. But there's also much more in there now about climate change and much more about restoring you know, serious parts of, of uh, the public service, public services that have been damaged by austerity, but also going beyond that, also saying, look, we can introduce free childcare. 
who want to talk about setting up a, a national education service which will provide free education, high quality for everyone, cradle to the grave, as they say. So, so these are, these are sort of much bigger, much more expansive ideas that are contained in the manifesto. Uh, and I think it's had that same sort of impact that once it was published, once it was out, you could see it had a, it, there's an enthusiasm about it and a desire to go out and talk to people and make the argument for really quite a, a, a big change in direction about, about the way the whole of this society is going. I think one of the most interesting things that you raise in in this piece, uh, the winning the general election piece back from October, is is your suggestion that, you know, your insistence rather that Boris Johnson is is certainly not uh, Theresa May. He and his uh, counterparts, his his co-thinkers, Dominic Cummings for one, are are no great, you know, they're no great stands for Thatcherite austerity. They don't have the kinds of what you call ideological compunctions about spending cash if they have to. And so one of the, you know, the, the main talking points from the prior manifesto was the end, the end to austerity, the immediate end to austerity, the end of the suffering, end of the cuts, which the Tories have come around, at least rhetorically speaking, to support. So they've kind of outflanked that talking point. Do you think this latest manifesto, before we go into, into detail about what it actually includes, do you think this latest manifesto has successfully gone further than the rhetorical kind of strategies of Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson are, are, are likely and willing and able to go? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, what's happened in practice is that there was a lot of talk about ending austerity. Uh, I mean, Theresa May was saying the same things, particularly after 2017, um, and then didn't really do much about it. There was a small the Tories say they found some extra money to, to sort of stop cuts for the next year or so, but really austerity uh, on the basis of what's actually in the manifesto uh, pretty much continues. It sort of freezes government spending at a much, much lower level uh, than we would have been used to, say, 10 years ago. Um, so, so it kind of bakes in austerity. It doesn't do the thing that I, I feared they would do, which is actually get out there and say, right, we're going to spend and we don't care. We're not going to have this attachment to a small state or whatever. We just want to absolutely uh, destroy the Labour Party and deliver Brexit. And this is how we're going to get there. That's their, uh, broadly speaking, I mean, that's what Boris Johnson said when he was standing for election as a Conservative Party leader over the summer. He said he was going to do two things. One, deliver Brexit. Two, destroy Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, he's not actually done either of those things yet. Uh, and this election is his chance to try and do both of them uh, at once. So the stakes are, are very, very high at this point in time. But in terms of moving beyond just saying austerity, I think this manifesto, because to, particularly to a very large extent, it talks about well, two things, really. One is um, climate change and the necessity of dealing with climate change and turning that into not just a, a sort of you know, gesticulate at it and say the climate's important. I mean, basically everyone does this in this country now. You know, every single political party has some notional attachment to doing something about climate change uh, in terms of decarbonising the economy, getting to net zero emissions by some point in the future. So everyone gesticulates at this. This manifesto actually says, well, this is what it looks like. Here are where the jobs are going to be. Here are the changes we're going to make to how we produce, uh, how, how, we, you know, how we live our lives so very large extent actually i mean it's it's new jobs new investment right the way across the country it's lots and lots of fairly practical on the ground things that, that can be done there so it sort of starts to lay at that picture on one side and then on the other there's this idea of universalism in other words this sort of break with the kind of clinton democrats or new labor version of how you provide welfare spending in particular where you you, you make everything means tested and you set up hoops for everybody to jump through and then once you jump through the hoop perhaps you get your pittance out the other side i mean this is what new labor uh, really introduced in a very large way in this country and i understand in america was something similar with a sort of new democrats approach to thinking about welfare um what's happened under austerity is that that, that means testing has become kind of a form of torture 
if you if you're disabled for instance you, you need to try and get uh, you know and it's a derisory handout by this point but even to get that you have to try and demonstrate that you know you're you're unfit for work and all these other really quite humiliating things so it's become extremely unpleasant so it's a turn in the manifesto towards a vision of the provision of public services as a universal good, as something that is a right, not a commodity or not something you get grudgingly as a sort of act of charity by the state, but something like education. Education is a right. You get it for free. Uh, you can think more broadly than this. Um, broadband, you know, right. Britain has very, very bad, uh, frankly, uh, broadband connections, really quite strikingly bad. I mean, you know, even in the big cities, it's, it's very slow and it's really expensive. So instead of that, you say, okay, we'll have a nationalised uh, broadband provider uh, we'll put full fibre, in other words, fibre optic, absolutely everywhere in the country at a cost of about £20 billion, pounds, and we will make it free on top of that because we think that this is a, this is a right. Or it should be treated as a right uh, in a sort of modern, civilised society. This is what the sort of thing we ought to be looking at. So it's universalism. It's saying that this is a much more expansive idea about what, what public provision of various goods and services could be. So that's part of the vision, I think, in the manifesto. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to talk about the universal broadband, the, the nationalized broadband, and more specifically, uh, let's get to that. That that was uh, launched about, about three weeks ago to the the usual sort of fanfare and and also you know the jeers and the concerns about creeping communism, creeping state socialism, or what have you. Um, that was such a brilliant demand because it really transcends kind of you know left right whatever political ideological spectrum concerns and, and just gets to the basic needs. Uh, felt by many people. And it's my understanding that people in the doorstep uh, in the process of campaigning were discovering that this was something that was uh, nearly universal across across the country. And it was addressed very, uh, very rapidly in a, in a, in mm-hmm. a very kind of, uh, you know, nimble sort of way, I think, you know, rather than sort of approaching this in, in a formulaic sense. That really is the kind of heart of Corbynism, isn't it? This kind of universalism, this approach to yeah. dealing with the the lived and felt needs of people over these sort of uh, rhetorical or ideological uh, strategies. Uh, it's something that I think we need very sorely in the United States. It's something that Bernie Sanders is is getting to, uh, you know, it, starting to understand the outlines of of that strategy. Uh, but it's something that's just really kind of baked in and knee, knee jerk, perhaps coming from the the strong labor left tradition. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I think that's that's where it's, it's it's come out of quite quite strikingly that that part of the tradition there. Uh, in, in the case of the broadband announcement, I mean, it's, it's probably the single sort of new thing that Labour's announced that's cut through the most with with the wider public. I mean, it's very very clear. It's, it was a uh, it was what the launch was three weeks ago, so it was ahead of the full manifesto coming out. Uh, it landed very well. It's a big, bold, dramatic statement. It tells you something about the future. People can immediately grasp what it is. You can see straight away. If the government says we're going to give you really fast broadband free you know what that is so and people grasp that straight away and it's popular you know you ask people do you think this is a good idea basically people say yes the challenge around a lot of this and i think this is the challenge after 10 years of austerity and having a government that continually takes things away from people the challenge is convincing people that you can actually do this that this is a plausible demand that you know this that we do in fact live in a, a very rich country six richest on the planet uh, in terms of GDP, and that the real problem is the distribution of wealth in that country, not the fact that this country is somehow very poor and we can't do these things. So then there's the challenge of saying, look, we can redistribute the wealth, we can shuffle things around, and it is possible to have a much, much better life for everybody on the basis of doing that. And that, I think, is the the, the hard argument to win out of all of this. Let's peel back and do a little horse race uh, analysis here. 
as we call it in the United States. I don't know if you have a, a similar kind of a disdainful word in, in, in the British context. I probably ought to have, but I think I know what you're getting at here. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, you know, we, we all love to hate it. It's one of those things, but we all end up finding ourselves uh, these little, you know, little Nate Silvers walking around making our bold prognostications about the various election results and polling interpretations. But without, you know, with that kind of uh, those caveats mentioned at the outset, uh, let's go ahead and risk reading into the polls uh, quite literally. Uh, they are shifting in the direction of Jeremy Corbyn uh, and labor in general. What do you make of this? We know that the polls are notoriously bent in the direction of the Lib Dems and, and the Tories, but uh, they are definitely trending in the direction of certainly, as was announced earlier this week, a hung parliament, which would be a tremendous victory. Uh, what do you make of these trends? The, the voting registration numbers are through the roof as they are in the under 30, under 25 crowd, which will disproportionately benefit labor. Uh, what do you make of this trend? Okay, there's there's a couple of things. I, mean, I do keep saying to people that they shouldn't really trust any polls. I think you can. I think AOC had a good line in it, which is that we're here to change the polls, not to watch the polls. Uh, but, but with that kind of proviso, um, th- there's a couple of things that even if you don't trust them, you can kind of read a little bit out of it. It's just a question of how far you think that this is going to tell you reliably what's going to happen in the future. Um, you're absolutely right in the trend that that what's happened is almost exactly the same rate uh, as we saw in 2017. Is the gap between the two parties is closing. So Labour started to a long way behind uh, in polling terms, the Conservative Party. What's happened since then is the smaller parties got squeezed and and broadly the Conservative Party has has gobbled up all the, or a great deal of support from the Brexit Party, this rather sort of short-lived, it still maintains a a kind of existence, but it's rather short-lived formation that Nigel Farage, the former UKIP leader uh, and and, uh, Donald Trump fan, uh, had set up, um, that, that had a huge splash in the European elections back, it came top of the poll in the European elections back in the earlier part of this year, but has now essentially said it's not going to stand and it's going to give the Tories a, a free run in, in at least what, half the seats they thought would be competitive. So the Tories are taking that chunk of their vote. What's happening on the other side is the Labour is squeezing uh, the Lib Dem part of the vote and, and the Green part of the vote. So you have this very clear polarisation in the election, very, very similar to 2017, very similar driving forces 2017, very similar sets of people uh, voting, with the complicating part is that, that Brexit has unsettled more how people are voting uh, this time around than last time. It's probably about a, a third of people, uh, uh, and this is way, way up in what it was you know, even a few years ago, uh, a third of people are switching between parties around elections. There's still a great deal of people who say they're undecided out there. So there's, a, there's an enormous amount of volatility potentially between now and polling day. But if you just look at the trend, the trend at the minute is moving quite hard in Labour's direction. And as you say, if that continues, then a hung parliament would not be a bad sort of uh, guess as to where you end up. But I mean, there's still a week to go. So uh, there's a great deal of things that could intrude between now and then, frankly. You know, it occurs to me that perhaps we're a little ahead of of, of where many of our listeners are at at this point. Uh, Explain to my primarily, uh, you know, American audience, what does a hung parliament mean? What will be the implications of that? Ah, Yes. Okay, so this is a parliamentary system. So you need you have what six hundred and fifty one MPs to form a government. Ideally, you need a majority of them who support your government. So you, as prime minister, need to round up was it three hundred and fifty one or so uh, MPs to say they'll support you in parliament and pass your bills and support your your you know what you want to do is finance and raising taxes and all that sort of thing. If you can't get that, and historically. Governments in Britain have had a majority in Parliament and usually we have a a pretty stable sort of two-party system that produces 
a majority for one party or another. If you don't have that, it gets described as a hung parliament. So in 2017, it was a hung parliament. The Conservatives failed to win a majority. Neither did Labour. The Conservatives didn't have a majority. They had to cobble together a sort of uh, a deal with this this Northern Irish party, this this rather eccentric and, and probably going to disappear from parliament this time round, a party called the Democratic Unionists. Uh, and they sort of propped them up for the last two years until things have really collapsed uh, earlier this year. So so that's a hung parliament. Uh, so if we talk about hung parliaments in British terms, what it means is that no party commands a majority. And that's the point when you get into like, is it possible to stitch together some coalition or some, you know, uh, arrangement one of the other parties will agree not to vote against you they won't put in a motion of confidence to bring down the government that sort of thing so so that's the kind of that's the real horse trading uh, a part we might end up looking at um again this is what happened in 2017 on current showing this this could be what happens again um or I mean, there's a range of, range of other options here. Obviously, people are out campaigning very hard to get as, as big a Labour vote as possible. And, and I think the evidence of that campaign is seen in what's happening with the polls, that you can see the impact of having, you know, Labour has about half a million members, a great deal of whom are out knocking on doors and actually conducting the arguments irrespective of what's happening in the press and the media and all the rest of it. That's the thing that's driving this. Um, you mentioned the registrations as well. I mean, these are, these are people who've registered to vote in, in Britain. You have to you have to basically apply to get permission, not permission really, but you have to apply for the, the right to vote to put yourself in the electoral register so you can turn up and, and go and vote. Um, if top of my head, it's about 4 million registrations ahead of uh, polling this time round, which is way, way above last time. It's, it's a good few million, at least, above last time round. And most of those new registrations are coming from younger people who we know from polling and just it's just obvious, are, are very, very substantially more likely to vote Labour. Now, that registration... Uh, those new registrations won't, as a rule, be showing up very clearly in any polling that we now have, because it's quite hard to, for a polling company to work out what to do with somebody who's just newly registered to vote. I mean, do, uh, does that mean they're really likely to vote because they're enthusiastically going off to register? Or does it mean they don't really care very much because they've not registered before? So it's, it's quite hard for them to work out. Uh, and it introduces this big sort of volatile other element, I think, into what might happen next week. Pardon this interruption. We'll be returning to my interview with James Meadway in just a few moments. But this is the part of the program where I would like to remind you that this program is brought to you by the generosity of the patrons of DPS Media. It is no stretch to say that I absolutely could not and would not be doing this without the generosity of these patrons. So if you enjoy DPS, if you like the brilliant guests that I bring on on a weekly basis, and you want to see this program continue for months and years to come, I implore you, take time out of your busy schedule, pause this podcast right now, and head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. Become a subscriber at a level of your choosing, somewhere that you are financially comfortable with, and you will get some of the rewards and bonuses of membership. Those include occasional B-sides with our brilliant guests, as well as a new segment called In Case You Missed It or I-C-Y-M-I for short. This is where I scour the internet across space and time to bring you some of the most important and educational lectures and interviews out there. I myself have been scouring the internet for this content for the better part of a decade. So allow me to curate your listening enjoyment, your educational delights, if you will. Some members will get that and much more. You'll get access to the patron discord where you have my full attention as well as the fullest attentions of my brilliant patrons who have a lot of knowledge. So you're free to ask questions, recommend guests. And this is also where I elicit questions for 
my guests on a fairly frequent basis. So if you would like to ask a person like James Meadway a question and be mentioned live on air, sign up at patreon.com slash and support these politics. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of my interview with James Meadway. That's right. I mean, reading the polls won't won't uh, bring us a victory, but uh, I think it's safe to, to at least be suspicious or suspect that a lot of these polls are uh, underselling the the demographics that uh, disproportionately uh, are in favor of not only Jeremy Corbyn but also Bernie Sanders here in the United States. Uh, but again, uh, we can you can as my as my uh, somewhat crass grandfather used to say, you can wish in one hand and shit in the other one and figure out which which one fills up first. Uh, that's, 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 that's charming. That's another charming American expression. That's a good old. That's a, that's a nice. Uh, right. That's a nice mountain. Uh, what we call hillbilly expression here, James. Uh, <laughs> I come from a classy stock, uh, but it's yeah. true. Wish in one hand, shit in the other. See which one fills up faster, and that's that's the case with this this kind of uh, poll polling, you know, fetishism. So forget the polls. Uh, get out there and canvas. Knock on the doors. And while we're at it, I'm going to go ahead and insert a plug here. People in the United States can phone bank for labor through momentum. Tell my listeners a little bit about that. You'll, you'll have several days once this is released to get out there and hit the phones to try to drive out those votes. How does that work? Yes, that's, um, my God, like, you'd have to sign up to Labor International who's been organizing this. Uh, and basically, you, know, you get a set of numbers to call through and, uh, and the scripts and the attempt, uh, a chance to try and persuade some people to, to vote for Labor. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you know, there, there are many, many different ways that people can do, do these sorts of things. Uh, the traditional method of knocking on doors and actually talking to people is probably the most single, most productive way to do this right that is where it really starts to make a difference to how people vote because you can have a conversation with people you can try and persuade them and once you've got i mean in some constituencies the one i'm thinking of is up in uh, north north london where ian duncan smith this uh, particularly uh, i'd say detested mm. um, government minister responsible for introducing and overseeing big reforms to the benefit system here which has led to very very large numbers of people who been forced into destitution, large numbers of frankly deaths associated with it. Really, really very, very unpopular man indeed. Uh, there's a very, very good candidate, Pfizer Shaheen, who's standing against him, uh, and a real enthusiasm about the campaign. So she said like you know, 700 people turn up on a Saturday afternoon to go out knocking on doors and, on some occasions. So if you can get those numbers out, you can get very large numbers of people knocking on doors and having the kind of longer conversations about why you should be voting Labour and, and hopefully start to change a few people's minds. And like I said, the, what you can see from the polling, what you can see from the canvassing returns, the information that's coming back, it does start to look like that is happening. And you can see the shift in how people are thinking about the election, who they're going to vote for in the last sort of few weeks or so, especially. That's right. Everybody uh, get on Netflix or you can uh, probably pirate it online. Watch I, Daniel Blake. Get really pissed off about what you just saw in that uh, movie. And then go campaign to take down Ian Duncan Smith for Pfizer Sheen. I, I guarantee you, uh, your, your fires will be lit. <laughs> Uh, speaking of FISA, I've I've seen her on a number of Navara and other, you know, she was on um, uh, a number of episodes and panels and so on and so forth talking about the green industrial revolution beside yourself. So let's talk about that aspect of the manifesto. This is one of the more touchy, uh, touchy, more perhaps uh, risky aspects of the manifesto. It's something that requires an intense amount of negotiation for the various kind of social political and class forces in that country. It's something that we in the United States are facing right now with our Green New Deal. Um, how have you all brokered that uh, that coalition and, and how have you dealt with some of the objections that come from the labor left? Well, this, this is, um, I mean, this is a sort of a version of the, the Green New Deal. It's, it's given a kind of 
British coloration, if you like, to talk about a green industrial revolution, which because people didn't know what an industrial revolution is and a new deal maybe isn't quite so resonant. I think that was the, the thinking behind it. But if you think it's a green new deal, then you're, you're along the right lines. I mean, that comes out of a, a, a particularly a push over this year by some of the campaign groups here inspired by, well, AOC as much as anything else and, and the push for a green new deal in the US to try and launch a campaign here to shift labour policy into saying we will back a 2030 or thereabouts target to get to net zero carbon, uh, a big push on you know, creating very, very large numbers. Eventually, you're looking at probably a million uh, sort of climate jobs and green jobs right the way across the country. And also, I think importantly for this this election, um, tying up not just that kind of it's, it's a stereotype. It's not. It's not true that, that people think like this. But sometimes climate change gets presented as this thing that you know you might care about if you're sort of middle class and living in a city and and having quite a nice life. Uh, and, and it's not really true. We know this isn't true for the polling. Everyone's rightly concerned about this. But it gets presented like that. But it's a way of tying climate change up where they concerned to deliver investments and good secure jobs in parts of the country where it just that just hasn't happened for now 30 40 years under successive governments whether it's new labor in government or whether it's conservatives in government you know there are parts of the country it's, it's familiar it's the same story in the u.s you know you've just got places just been used to have lots of manufacturing jobs used to have investment security all that sort of thing and it's just not been there for 20 30 years you, know, you call it the rust belt right and it's a similar thing very similar thing uh, in Britain, you can go to towns. Uh, I'm kind of from from one myself up in up in the north, where it's just been absolutely hammered for decades. Uh, and now, with austerity and the recession, all the rest of it on top, you can walk down high streets and just boarded up shops and charity shops, and that's kind of your, your miserable lot. So really, it's a way of saying that the green industrial revolution is saying that look, we've got this big challenge of climate change, both in adapting to climate change and trying to mitigate some of the consequences of climate change. And in doing that, we can deliver investment and create jobs in places that otherwise haven't seen it for decades now. So that's that's the sell. That's the, that's the bit where you go out and say, look, this is what your town is now going to look like. This is what Labour can deliver for it. This is where the £400 billion, pounds, which is a huge sum of money, this is the £400 billion pounds plan to spend and invest over 10 years. This is what it starts turning into on the ground. So that, that I think, is the key. That, I'm going to make the point in the, in the Tribune article we mentioned. That, I think, is a real sort of cutting edge argument to be having with people that we could actually make a difference on the ground there is there's no need to sort of put up with just being fallen by the wayside for for great parts of the country that's right i think a number of sort of principled sort of marxists and socialists here in the united states would be a little bit surprised to hear you uh, talk about aoc in such a such an ad you know in, in terms of those, those terms of admiration i think like aoc in, in our view is is kind of this sort of um a lot of people view her unfairly as a kind of more sort of like liberal minded sort of uh, woke lord, which is incredibly unfair. And I think it's uh, really interesting to see when I talk to Corbinites, uh, they sort of view her in a, in a different light, which I think is a much more accurate representation of the kind of politics and vision that she presents. I think that our brains are a little bit broken by marginality on the left here in the United States in that respect. So that, that's, I mean, that, 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 happen, that can happen here, but I think yeah. the perception of AOC in particular is, is that she's, she's a socialist in American terms. She'd be, she's a socialist and, and that's why people are inspired by her. It's not that you know, she's just another liberal or something. She's actually saying something really definite about the distribution of power and wealth in the States. And here is a program where we do something about it. So, so that's why people look up to her. Yeah, yeah, it's really inspiring to hear how how you. I mean, of course, we we don't want to candy coat it, sugar coat it. Uh, you you know, labor has its problems internally, and we can get to those here in a moment. Should labor succeed here in any way, uh, they're going to be riven by internal divisions, and it's going to be interesting to see how those will play out and ho- how those may or may not be dealt with by by the leadership. But with that being said, it's still inspiring to see a kind of uh, more centralized organization in the labor party being able to go out and have a unified message. 
Whereas even, you know, having a, a certain kind of political vehicle to do that at all in the United States, it's very, it's very, we, it's very limited in so far as we, we don't have a political vehicle to do that. So something to aspire to and think about as we, as our movement grows in the U.S. and, and what we might uh, work towards having such a vehicle. Of course, you all didn't have a vehicle very long ago uh, either, did you? <laughs> so. Well, as it's true. No, no, no. I mean, it, was, it was made very clear. And this is what, one of the things that New Labour did, which was to, uh, I think, Peter Mandelson, who was, who was one of the architects uh, of New Labour alongside Tony Blair, uh, said that he wanted to put the left in a sealed tomb. You know, this is, this is the, how the leadership of the Labour Party uh, thought about the left for, for a long period of time. They were just these terrible, backward recidivists that were responsible for dragging Labour into defeat after defeat. This is a sort of mythology around it. And therefore, they should never, ever be allowed anywhere near any leaders of power again, um, all of which was sort of overturned in, in summer 2015 when uh, Jeremy got elected leader of the Labour Party. Uh, and you know, this, that, that brings us to where we are today, I suppose. That's right, right. So things can change and shift dra- drastically. It's important to remember that. Uh, a number of people in the world transformed like to remind some of the, 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 uh, the Americans in attendance that uh, it hasn't always been this way. Uh, yeah. you know, that was sort of some of the report back I got from the past the past two uh, conferences there. Um, let's see. We have to we have to wind this up. You have places to be. Uh, lots going on there. Of course, things are moving. It is what they like to call the pundits here in America like to call a highly kinetic situation. Uh, makes them feel very tactical and uh, military military. <laughs> Military oh, savvy. scientific. It's, it's, kinetic's a good word. It's got that sort of spurious science it's, gloss. It's, it's a it? science gloss. It. It's also, it makes them feel very uh, like they're, they're in the back of a tank, like embedded in a war zone. You know, it's very tactical. Uh, anyway, this, they all fetishize that, that type of, uh, you know, plucky reporting. Um, let's see. Let's talk very briefly about Brexit and the resonances there, because mm-hmm. this is all, it's all there, right? It's the 800-pound grill in the room that nobody wants to talk about, but it certainly has laid the foundations and the grounds. We're seeing uh, Boris Johnson flounder in his promise to deliver Brexit and his promise to deliver really anything that he says he's ever going to do. How has uh, Labour been able to make hay out of that that uh, failure to deliver on that promise? Well, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's from the Tory point of view, they've, they've wanted to the Conservative point of view, they wanted to put the, the entire election and frame it, all of it, as this is about Brexit. This is going to be a rerun of the 2016 referendum. Uh, and from their point of view, their thinking was the Remain side is divided because there's Labour and the Lib Dems and maybe a few other parties. So they're divided. And the Conservatives can guzzle up everybody who wants uh, wants to leave the EU and just promise them that. And if you fight that campaign, this is a sort of Conservative plan, uh, and reduce to a bare minimum any discussion about anything else, then they can go out and win. Uh, and it does give them, it gives them a good sort of 40% of the vote. Right? There's a lot of people out there, there's loads of Conservative voters, there's a lot of people out there who definitely would like to see Brexit delivered straight away. That's the thing that they really want to vote for. The challenge they've got is getting any any distance beyond that point. And this is where you run into what, what I think was actually a, a mistake on their part in terms of how they fought the campaign, which is that, to be absolutely honest with you, yeah, after three years of going round and round in circles on this, I think most people are pretty sick of Brexit one way or the other. It's not something you want to talk about, it's not something you want to think about. They may well think just get on with it and get out of the way, but it's not like something they want to spend a great deal of time obsessing over. So the idea that you're going to run a conservative campaign in which your sole thing, really, because it's a bare-bones manifesto, almost nothing else really going on there, uh, the sole thing you talk about is get Brexit done. And you say this ad nauseum for five weeks right, to a bunch of people who just don't want to talk about Brexit that much, is it is not actually necessarily going to be the the genius campaign strategy you might have thought. And, And I think it has had that impact because we've not 
funnily enough, ended up with this being the Brexit election. It's been an election about the NHS, somewhat about climate, somewhat about all sorts of other issues that you'd that have bubbled up, as you'd expect to happen in an election campaign, because apart from anything else, people have to sit and think about, you know, who's going to run the country, uh, what they think of how it's been run at the moment, and how they think it's going to be run in the future. So they tend to think a little bit more than just, here's a single issue, it's Brexit, which uh, at best is, is, this, is how, this is how the Conservatives want to present it, as an issue for like, well, you know, as soon as we get elected again with the majority, we'll do Brexit straight away, that's it, all over by the end of January. This isn't true. I mean, this isn't going to be possible for them to do that, but... You know, they, they can try and get a withdrawal agreement passed, but they won't actually stop talking about Brexit for a very, very long period of time if you're trying to negotiate trade deals and all the rest of it. So that hasn't worked out for them. The, the sort of trade deal part of it uh, is also bitten on bitten on the bum because you know, you've got these leaked papers that Jeremy Corbyn rather sensationally revealed to the press like last, last week, showing the details of negotiations and discussions between US and UK trade representatives, in which it is made very clear that amongst other things, and there's a great deal of other things, amongst other things, the NHS is very much on the table. And that means getting rid of protections on drug prices, it means potentially cracking, cracking open the vast amounts of data that the NHS holds on, on patients and getting it over to sort of big tech companies, uh, also, all sorts of things that can be done to basically undermine the NHS, privatise it and, and sell it off to, to one form or another to, to US sort of pharmaceutical and healthcare companies. So so that hasn't worked out very well for the Tories. And I think that threat to the NHS is, is quite a motivating factor for a very large number of people here. So so that's that's kind of how the things things playing out at the minute. That's how Brexit has appeared in this election, which is not really to my surprise, although I think a few people are surprised, not in quite as overwhelming a form as it might have been. It does mean the election's tight. It does mean there's a lot of people, and we know this in 2017, who will vote on a sort of Brexit basis. Most of them are frankly Conservatives who are going to vote Conservatives. There may be a few other people who can be persuaded. And I think we do have a, a job of work as a Labour Party over the next week to sort of talk to more people, explain to more people, go through what it is we're trying to say, go through Labour Party's own offer of Brexit, which is essentially to say, look, this has been a mess. We need a second referendum and that's it. We're going to just, you know, whatever it says we do, and that's the end of this one. Um, but get on to the, talking about the more substantive issues beyond Brexit, the state of the NHS, the state of schools, where the job is going to come from, what we're doing about climate change. All of these things, uh, I think you can move on to once Brexit is somewhat parked as an issue. In closing, this may be a little Pollyannish, but I'm feeling good about the prospects of a Labour victory on, on the 12th. I really am. Um, I think, you know, at this point in time, I don't know, maybe we're spoiled, uh, but we keep seeing long shots play out. Uh, we keep seeing our prospects uh, end up ending up far better than we had thought. And at some point, you know, you, you start to wonder, is is it going to be like this forever? You know, are we just going going to always, uh, you know, <laughs> outperform our expectations? Are we always going to come out on the winning side of the, of the battle? Uh, certainly not for always, but for the time being, uh, we're playing a really hot hand right now. And it wouldn't be too far fetched to see us uh, pull this thing out. How do we prepare for the somewhat unlikely but but possible event of a labor victory what does a what does a labor government do as we say in the united states in the first 100 days and how do they face down the inevitable challenges and revolts that will come from the, from the ruling class this is a giant question but what are maybe rail off in closing here maybe three major thoughts that come to mind here well, I mean, just to underline that yeah, it is, it's a possibility that this happens, but, but let's not start uh, counting chickens and, and, and this sort of thing. We're, we're a very long way from actually having the election and actually even getting to a minority government. This is this is a hard fight over the next week or so, but I mean, yeah. it is one that, that's entirely possible to win. If that does happen, I think that probably, I think what's going to actually, do you know what, I think there's going to be some 
some more talk about what's going to happen in the first 100 days over the next few days here. So I think there'll be people trying to lay out a bit of a sense of what a Labour government would do if, if it's formed and what, it, what its immediate priorities are. My own sense of that is that the things that you need to do are the things that you can immediately make a dramatic difference to people's lives. If you've had basically almost 10 years of austerity, continual spending cuts, uh, continual real wages lower now than you were in 2008, you need to do things straight away that can demonstrate that this is a different government, that you're doing something and your life is better as a result of that. So that, that would mean probably some big promises around or and big promises and deliveries around uh, spending some money. I mean, in 2017, the plan was to, the elections in June, term starts for universities in September, October. So the plan was in September to immediately get rid of tuition fees because it's a big, dramatic, uh, you know, it'd be really quite a dramatic thing if you did it to suddenly make university education free in this country. So something like that and, and things that will demonstrate to everyone that, your life is better, this is a government that's different to the last one, and it's going to carry on being like this, then that's the sort of place you want to get to in the first 100 days. Yeah, that sort of idea of instant delivery of, of the goods, right? Which is interesting. It's very refreshing because in the United States here, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is said to be you know, grossly irresponsible. You have Elizabeth Warren triangulating uh, with the right in the center, you know, over things like Medicare for all, suggesting that, no, 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 we can't do this right away at the outset. It's irresponsible. But you're suggesting the exact opposite, that if you do not deliver the goods right off the bat, right away, people will begin to to doubt your resolve or your ability to get it done. Uh, and, and exactly. Ability. People aren't voting. You're not voting to keep things a bit the same or to tweak things a bit. You're voting for things to be different. So you have to do something that's different and you have to do a few things that are different straight away. And it's clear that it's different and it gives people something they want. So that would be the kind of set of things I'll be looking for in the first hundred days. So we, we I talked a little bit about you know the optimistic view here, uh, the Pollyannish view, perhaps going a little further, but injecting some realism here. If if labor performs as expected, as the polls lay out, and say there's a hung parliament, say there's some you know some negotiations going behind the scenes, who knows? But but there's certainly not a labor majority, and certainly not labor in, in any kind of leading uh, governing coalition. That's kind of the expectation. Now we of course want to we we want to everybody get the heck, knock on the doors and make the phone calls. Don't don't pay any attention to what we're saying right now. What is the likelihood of there being a kind of movement for what, what has been called Corbynism without Corbyn following these elections should Labour fail to, to join a governing coalition? Or, or, or to give a more sort of positive take on it, you know, we, we know at some point that there'll be a, a leadership election. Let's say it's after you know the first four, four or five years, the uh, first term of a very successful Labour government. You know, there's, there's a range of different things that might happen there in practice. Whatever outcome from anything over the next few years, the, the ideas of Corbynism, this whole sort of Corbynite movement, it does not really depend. And, and Jeremy says this himself: it doesn't really depend on what Jeremy's doing or not doing. There's a movement here. There's a movement with a set of ideas, a set of new institutions. Whether it's on this sort of intellectual end, there's various new think tanks. Whether it's on the sort of the movement organising end, like Momentum. Whether it's the just the shift in the bounds of what is considered possible, you know, this moving of the Overton window, if you like, that we've seen very, very starkly over the last three years or so. All of this has shifted. All of this has changed very, very uh, dramatically from what it was in 2015. So whatever happens in the next few years, I don't see that fundamental change in the terrain uh, going away. So whatever happens, we're going to be building on this, I think. That's right. Well, we've got to wrap up here. You're a busy guy. You've got a lot going on. Everybody, uh, you know, look out. Uh, everybody, I'll, I'll put a link to in the, in the show notes so everybody can join the Labor International effort to, to phone bank for, for Corbyn. Uh, we want to build this transatlantic left. It's very important. Win, lose, or draw. Uh, we are building our forces. Uh, they, they, are, they greatly outnumber, at least politically speaking, uh, they greatly outnumber our opposition. Uh, both in strength and in, you know, in principle. Unfortunately, capital being capital still has the money and the resources, uh, but we've got the people. 
and it's really encouraging. Uh, I hope to bring you back on the show or one of your Corbinite uh, compatriots in the coming weeks and months ahead. With, yeah, with happy news. to come back at some point. Yeah, yeah, All that'd right. be good. Thanks again. Cheers, then. And that concludes today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. Thanks again to James Meadway for enlightening us about the British situation. Everybody cross your fingers, sign up with Labor International with Momentum to phone bank in the last days if you can. James Meadway has written a piece uh, that's gone up on Novara reminding us that a large percentage of voters made up their minds to vote Labor in the last week prior to the election. So it may well be the 11th hour, but it is not yet too late to win this thing. The polls are trending in our direction, but we can't believe the polls. We have to get out on the streets. You got to knock on doors. And if you are in the U.S. or outside of Great Britain proper, you can pick up a phone and dial the voters and make the arguments yourself. So I encourage you to do that. It is a once in a lifetime opportunity to impact an election in another country and fight for socialism abroad. That's true internationalism in action. So speaking of incredibly knowledgeable and eloquent people on DPS, later on this week, we're going to be joined by Jacobin staff writer Megan Day. We're going to be breaking down some of the implications of the Corbin moment, the transatlantic left, and we'll be doing some horse racing. We're going to be tracking the horse race. Megan Day is going to make a spirited case for why it is that principled socialists should be involved in the horse race. I spent a lot of time denigrating it, so... I'm looking forward to that case, and you should be looking forward to it as well. Given that the British election is on the immediate horizon and the Democratic Party primaries and the caucuses associated with that are coming up very quickly, I'm doing the best I can to keep as much of this content free of charge. I didn't start this podcast almost three years ago now to put up the most valuable content behind a paywall. And as I've said elsewhere, I know that's probably really bad for my bottom line. I understand that I would probably have twice the patron support if I plastered a subscriber-only episode behind a paywall once a week like a lot of other podcasts do. I don't mean to denigrate those podcasts. They do fine work. It's just not in my constitution to slap an entire episode with a guest even behind a paywall so that only a small fraction of my listeners will ever be able to hear it. I started this podcast as a way to get these politics out to the masses and slapping things behind a paywall simply just doesn't do that. But with that being said, I'm going to need your support in order to continue this thing. So if you're still listening and you enjoy the politics of DPS and you learn anything at all from my guests or perhaps even my own incoherent ramblings at times, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. We have to support independent leftist media if this project is going to continue growing into 2020 and beyond. DPS is but a small part of that project, but I do think that we punch above our weight. I'm very proud of what we've accomplished over the past two and a half years, and I would like to keep that going for two and a half more. But we can't do it without your support. Once again, patreon.com slash deadpundits. Let's keep fighting. We'll see you all next time.